This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm PR and content manager Melissa Starker. At the end of March, Mexican filmmaker Carlos Regatas visited the Wex to present his latest film, Our Time, a portrait of toxic masculinity starring the filmmaker and his real-life wife, Natalia. Following the film, the director had an in-depth conversation with Laura Podolsky from Ohio State's Department of Spanish and Portuguese and Film Studies program about his personal approach to making films and how it differs from the mainstream. For this WexCast, we share the filmmaker's post-screening talk with Podolsky and the audience. Please note there is some ambient noise accompanying questions from the audience, so we've cut it out where possible. Our apologies for the distraction, and we hope you enjoy the talk. Carlos, it's a wonderful honor to have you here in Columbus with us. And I thought I'd begin starting out with a couple of questions and then open it up for you all to ask your questions. Many people have, many critics, scholars have talked about the visual aspects of your films, um, the use of widescreen compositions, your sense of volume, your sense of light, which I think is quite right on. But I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about the kind of sonic architecture of Nuestro Tiempo. And I'm thinking here not only of, obviously, the scenes of uh, in the concert hall, um, the use of King Crimson. I'm less thinking simply about music, but also about all those the richness of sounds. So sometimes we're seeing um, Esther coming in a car in an extreme long shot, and we're hearing a buzzing sound, right? Um, or Juan is spying on Esther and Phil, and we're hearing a rusty hinge. And then we're hearing animal sounds. And I think there's such a richness in the sonic, right, in the soundscape of this film. Um, so I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about, about that. Yeah, sure. Thank <laughs> you. Hello, good evening. Thank you for being here. When I'm making a film, everything I see, everything I film, I am aware of the sound it produces or the sound it is surrounded uh, whatever object or person or landscape the sound it's surrounded by or with. So I talk a lot about how cinema is uh, an art of presence rather than an art of representation, uh, how it's not about storytelling primarily, but about rendering presence or the unfolding of life, if you want. So in this respect, uh, sound is consubstantial to image. For me, they're just one single thing, actually. We know we, are, we receive these inputs from life with two different organs, but actually our brain doesn't distinguish uh, any of that. It's just life, it's just presence, existence, whatever you want to call it. So I feel the camera and the sound device to be a to work like some sort of funnel that is capable of uh, capturing uh, existence. And, uh, and sound, therefore, is very present, uh, is as present as image. It constitutes part of, of existence in, as one single entity, everything, not divided just because two, we need two different organs to recognize these two different... This single thing, sorry, that only our organs divide. So I do work a lot with the sound in every sense since choosing the locations. Of course, the recordings are very carefully done. There's very, very, very few follies in the film. 
and um, and we mix during a long time for equalization for distance. I don't like to hear like sin like the sound of cinema, but rather the sound of of what I experience as real life. That means no compression in sound. That means uh, a careful equalization, so you don't hear the so you hear the correct distance. Uh, on the people, you know, it's all about when you close your eyes and someone talks or someone is walking off and you hear the footsteps and you can measure with your head how far the input of the sound is. It's just because of equalization. Uh, so you can do that in, in, in a film. But very often in films you hear like very close distance sound like you hear me now because I'm speaking like this. And that is like the sound of cinema. But I prefer the sound of real life. And then same thing goes for the, lo the localization of sound, you know. It's very important for me to always remember that uh, in opposition to a painting let's say that does not go beyond the frame the cinema is rather just uh, like a little window through which you see a world that obviously goes beyond the frame you all the time see people coming out and, and into the frame and of course the sound goes beyond so that is also very important for the whole picturing of that world that, that goes beyond what you actually see Another uh, something that occurs to me, not only with this film, but perhaps, yeah. oh, <laughs> particularly, no, speaking of sound, right? <laughs> particularly with this film, but some of your other films, there seems to be um, a kind of a play or a tension between proximity and distance. And I'm thinking here not only of the characters, and here with um, Juan and Esther, there's this uh, everyday quality of mi amor, right? And the touching, or they wear the same robe, there's this proximity, but there are these moments of abrupt distance. But I'm also thinking about how the film engages the audience, right? Um, bringing us in and pulling us back. I'm struck in the ways that there are sometimes disjunctions or disarticulations between sound and image in your films. Um, a lot of use of kind of off-screen sound where we as spectators may not know exactly where the sound is coming from, who's speaking at any particular time. And, and I think this is a, is a quite lovely way that creates some distance, but at the same time sometimes gets us closer to a state of mind, a feeling um, that's emerging about uh, intimacy or the kind of the relationship of, of characters to each other. And so I'm wondering if you could, if you see that in your films, that you're playing with proximity and distance, because I've heard you speak before, I've, I've read, right, that you talk about how you want your films to have us emerge into a feeling. And I think they do that quite effectively, and I'm wondering if part of that is we're not conventionally always related to what's on the, in the pro-filmic space. Right, I think there's this this way that we aren't emerged as we are in some more conventional films um, that we're detached and yet we're brought, that allows us to bring us closer, not just to, you know, the motivations of a, a character, but a feeling that is emerging through the relationships of bodies um, and the sounds that are happening. So yeah. maybe that's too abstract, but no, no, I, I would just uh, think I could put it uh, in schematical terms. And that would probably answer the whole of your question. I, I think most of cinema is, of what we consider cinema, is uh, unilateral entertainment. What does that mean? That um, the film is like a truck coming to your yard and unloading some sand, for example, some material. Whatever is there on the film is meant to be univocal, clear, 
definitely not, not ambiguous in any sense. And you have to be led. The audience is led by a master of ceremonies, which is the, the film director or the film itself. Uh, and uh, whatever, whenever you have to laugh, you laugh. When you have to feel sad, you, we all are meant to feel sad. And that is what, for example, even the great, some of the greatest filmmakers in that tradition of cinema have done, like Hitchcock, for example. I personally don't like that kind of cinema very much. I prefer another kind of cinema, which is not about someone entertaining you and telling you how to feel and what to, fe and, and what to feel, or what, even what to look at on the screen. And when things are just being information, so the, the story may move on. I, I prefer uh, a cinema that is more, is closer in a way to experiencing life. So therefore, it's like looking at nature, a landscape, a human, an object, uh, whatever there is to be. And um, in real life, I mean, in ordinary life, if you are there in front of us on the seaside in a beautiful sunset, The sunset doesn't talk. There's just a physical phenomena. Just physical phenomena are going on, and you engage with that depending on what you want and who you are and how whatever your sensibility is, and even not even your permanent sensibility, but your state of mind that changes. Some days you are sensitive, some days you are not. For example, and this is very important for me. This is this is how I like to experience films. And these are the films I like to experience. And this is also the films I like to do because I want you to feel this way. I mean, the audience, uh, the people here. So that implies that some people get very bored and think my films are pointless, and some people engage with them and like them. And so if I were to put it in a, an example, I would say I like to do not post-relativist, post-modernist relativism, but rather objective objects, I would like to make objects, that can be filled up with uh, the viewer. The viewer fills them up. Let's say I, I would make vases. It's not relativism. It's, it's a vase. It's a completely objective uh, device. But you fill it up with whatever you are and whatever you want and whatever you're feeling that day. So that also implies that one day you feel the... F uh, probably you see, if you see the film more than once, you feel differently the second time or further if you carry on. Like it happens with music. With like uh, A terrible thing of, of films is that they're meant to be seen once. I mean, at least in the idea of uh, exploding them economically. But the truth is that certain films, just like certain records, would take some more time to really be felt you know it's very common that a new that a band you like a lot there's the new the new album out and the first time you played those you don't like it so much and you're disappointed but then you played further time i mean several times and then you start liking it and then probably it becomes your favorite but it takes some time for you to feel it unfortunately in film this is not always easy because you know you Uh, things go fast and critics and, and, and things are meant to be there consumed and exciting one single time. But I want them to, to come in more slowly. So this responds to your previous question about uh, distance and proximity. And proximity. Proximity, proximity yeah. sorry. Which is the base of, of, of ordinary life. We're close to ourselves, we're distant from ourselves, uh, the back and forth. You can be in your thoughts and there's a sudden noise of a truck around you and that takes you out. And probably you're in and you're just distracted. Same thing happens with uh, relationships. And there's high points and low points all the time. And these people in this film are, having a, are going through a crisis 
senses, they say love and everything, because there's habit also. Uh, there's surely love and tenderness, but at this point, there's probably also opposite uh, feelings, for sure. Yeah. And that, that goes for absolutely everything else. Sounds and mechanical things, too. Why don't we open it up? Do we have some questions out there? Yeah, John. And hopefully, Professor Dowski, maybe you can help me on this. I kind of want we to talk about our class about uh, your films as sort of as either national cinema, post-national cinema, global art films, and that sort of, in that sort of way. There's, it's about the relationship of things like the uh, traditional Mexican landscape painting, uh, particularly, I think, to a battle of heaven, the like, symbol of the Mexican flag being raised on the Plaza de la Constitution. Um, I'm sort of curious, where do you think your films sort of fit into the idea? Do you think they're post-national, transnational, just national, or, they, or is that in it, or, or are these inadequate uh, sort of dividers? Um, I will answer you with, again with something broader that would answer your question indirectly. I, very broad, very much broader, sorry. If I was a musician or uh, even a writer here talking about my book or my last piece of music, you would be very happy and I would just talk as a musician or a writer. And whenever we hear people talking about music, we hear musicians usually talk, uh, and, and composers who are musicians. And very rarely you would hear anything uh, uh, like related to the philosophy of music. There's essays on philosophy of music, but they're very rare, and they're not very relevant for musicians, and same thing goes for painters. But in, in cinema, that's why I said it's really broad. Uh, in cinema, uh, since the middle of the 1950s, a strong influence of philosophy started coming into cinema. A structuralism, very precisely. And then, of course, semiotics, all these things were saying, what does this mean, what does this say? And then categorizations, and then, of course, sociology and anthropology and psychology. And we try to have these kind of readings of films. And I understand you are in a university and you want to categorize and put things, and she's your professor and whatever. But and I make them do that. Yes, and she makes you do that, and that's the whole purpose of uh, all this. And I don't want to defeat it. But uh, until the end of the vanguards, it was Buñuel or, you know, the guys doing neuralism, Rossellini or Einstein before or whomever there was that was talking about cinema and making cinema. And people saw cinema also as artists. Not only people made cinema as artists, but people also saw cinema with an artistic approach. But now, unfortunately, and uh, since more than a half a century, uh, many, many, many filmmakers do make films as philosophers or at least theoreticians. Theoreticians. And even worse than that, viewers want to experience films also that way. So, uh, so we're judging, we're categorizing, and we're missing everything. Because again, I mean, this is a cliche, but I remember I, I read once that someone came to Picasso and he had, had an exposition and someone said to him, oh, master, you're so magnificent. But, but really, just tell me now that no one's hearing, what does it mean? What does it really mean, you know? And, and, and he said something like, when, when you're walking there in the middle of the field, do so you want to ask anyone, what does that mean? I mean, I know that sounds like a, like a provocation, but seriously, uh, I don't know. I, I've never heard those terms you mentioned. They don't mean anything to me. I don't know what you're talking about. That's the truth. 
And this is a very fair answer. And I really would invite you to think more that way. You know, all the philosophers that talk, for example, if you talk about music, apart from, you know, there's essays or, uh, by Francis Wolff on theory of music, what music means. But usually if you talk about music, you talk about music itself. You, you don't start talking about these strange things. Uh, and the proof is that philosophers, when they talk about films, rarely they say very sensitive things. Of course, they say very sensitive things regarding philosophy, but not films themselves. And they couldn't make films at all. Like Zizek, that spends a lot of his time writing about films and talking about films. He must be a terrible filmmaker if he tried. He's a great philosopher. And when he talks about films, it's really not interesting what he says. It's so basic. It's so categorizing, so... Uh, so unartistic, anti-artistic. So I, I really don't know how to answer it. I just make films about presence, about what I feel that is there in front of me. And there's many meanings, many things going on. And most of them are not pushed by me, but they're captured by this means, that, by this funnel, which is the camera and the sound device. Of course, there's a three-way process in which first there's a lot of you know, ego in the sense of consciousness. I don't mean like ego, egolatry or anything like that. Just consciousness, you want to do something, then you design, you think certain things. But then there's a process, a moment when you just capture and you just receive. And you don't need to know why. You just let it come and it's intuition. And then, then there's a last moment when there's an ego-directed process again, when it's putting things together and trying to go somewhere. But still, I, for me, this question of why is unnecessary. It, I really try to approach while making a film more a process like a dreaming or like just a, you know, vision, pure vision, where you don't know why. And a film is not like an airplane where every nut and bolt is there for a purpose. And not everything serves a purpose. And that's why I'm, I don't believe in those books that tell you how to make the perfect film. Because the perfect clock, I do know there's, there must be books how to make the perfect clock, that the one that never loses a second throughout the centuries, you know? And everything is in place. But a film is not a clock. So just the idea of the perfect film is absurd. A film is about personal vision, about feeling, about it, the individuality of each one of us and our uniqueness. And that's what I try to put forward. And all those categorizations, I really wouldn't be able to answer unless you would precise your question a little more. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to answer. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm also sort of, I'm also a historian on the side, so I'm also sort of designed to, I'm designed to sort of think this way from a different yes. uh, field of academics, but I do also kind of agree that sometimes, like for instance, I don't think your films are pointless, but I also don't think that every single thing in it needs to be analyzed, needs to be come forward. I think that is a quite valid uh, way to look at film as, as something organic and something captured. Yeah. But just so I make myself clear, I don't exactly mean that. I mean, that's only the way you experience it. But then what you think of it, of course, it's very fair and very interesting. And I would love to hear what you think of everything on a film, each one of you, you know. But my point is that it's, again, like life itself, like nature, like a landscape. There's the events. They don't talk. And, of course, you can interpret and say as much as you want uh, in front of them, and that can be very creative and very important, and it will show you, show me more about who you are rather than the landscape. There's a landscape in front of it, all of us. We're looking at it, the Grand Canyon, whatever you want, or just a simple park here. And each one of us then explains or writes in detail what is he feeling and what does this mean for him or her. And this will, it will be talking much about ourselves, 
whatever we write about what we're feeling rather than the park or the landscape itself. This is, this is my point. So when I hear people talk about the films and uh, sometimes they want to ask me if they're right or wrong, you know, uh, and I always say, I don't know, it's, it's not a riddle, but it's, it, it's there. And of course there's some sense of meaning, but you fill it up pretty much in the end. I, I want to present and not represent. And this is, this is very important. I'm not into representation, but presentation, and that changes everything. And that comes back to structuralism in the sense that this basic idea that says that a photographic image is not reality but representation, I think that idea is fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it is, I think a photograph is reality. Of course, it's, if you want, uh, transubstantiated reality because it's ink or it's light projected on, on the screen, whatever, it's not reality physically, but it is the real, for sure. If I show you now a photograph of your house burning and I tell you, look, uh, uh, you would just run out and go and try to put, uh, put the fire out, you know? It's not representation of anything, not because you been in black and white or from a longer distance or from a zenithal point of view, that means that you are representing. That means something else on a, on a second level, but on a first degree, basically, that's reality. Just think of the photograph of a person you, dear to you dead. That, uh, that, 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 that is shocking reality immediately. And this changes everything that cinema is meant to be since all the structuralists and the great Gilles Deleuze and all these great guys started thinking about it as, rep as pure representation. So then uh, cinema is very often just literature, illustrated literature, rather than, than presence, like music is presence or painting. Painting is about presence. But of course, it's it's also seen through someone else that puts it in, on the campus. Well, they're part of it. Yes. Oh, sorry. I was just wondering, if relating to the um, to the, the rendering and, and the reality you're talking about, and I find your last point also very interesting. But is that part of the reason that you uh, act yourself that you play the? No, 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 not at all. Um, when I talk about all this presence, I'm, I'm trying to talk of another quality, another dimension, if you want. It's not that that means that, that that is real and that the things that you've seen are real, or for example, in my case, because I'm autobiographical. It means that the system with which you are capturing things makes all those things go beyond being tools for informing a story. Like, in, when you think films are about telling stories, anything you uh, shoot just serves the purpose of informing the story so the story may move on. So it's not important how you shoot. It's not really important the sound as long as you can platonically codify what you're seeing. So you know, oh, he's going from here to there, oh, it's a car, it's a tree, I understand the house, etc. So everything is information, so the story moves on. But if you go beyond that, then you don't just see a tree and you conceptualize the word tree and, and uh, like a symbol and then you carry on, but you actually see the tree again. So this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, presence, and, and not uh, and truth, if you want, but not, uh, uh, let's say pre presentation rather than representation, don't get into truth and that kind of thing. But it's not that I, I, I am there for nothing related to that. Actually, I am there in this case, I mean, I can tell you, for me, this is a banality. 
that it should transcend completely that I'm there, the fact that I'm there. Uh, someone else was going to do it. I couldn't find this person and I uh, was shot for two weeks and then that would, wouldn't work. It was very hard. So I decided to do it myself. But for me, this was like making uh, a little theater uh, piece with my family in Christmas, you know, with my cousins or whatever. Because I did, we did that when we were many times. So I felt that way, you know. And actually, some I was saying, I don't know, this dinner that I saw, I read something clever in, in film comments by uh, some person that said that usually with all this, what now people call out of fiction or even for the autobiography, you usually make fiction with the real. So there's your real life and you sort of fictionalize it once you make a film with it, for example, or you write with it, like this Nausgaard, for example, the Norwegian guy. And it's like a, an original base or a real base, meant, it's meant to be, and then it's fictionalized when you write. But the idea in that comment, that in that film comment thing I read was the opposite. I didn't, it didn't occur to me. <laughs> I made it, but it didn't really, I didn't put it in concept. But it said, basically, I was trying to make, instead of fiction from the real, reality from fiction. So that means that everything that you've just seen, it's made, it's made up with my mind. But I'm there, my children are there, our, our clothing is a real clothing. My wife likes the carpet crawlers. But we are representing something else, like we would have done Macbeth, for example. So we are there, but, and we're probably enacting Macbeth. So we have nothing to do with Macbeth, but, but we do it, you know? So uh, that probably answers your question. Uh, but when I talk about, the, about presence and the real, that could be just photographing a glass, just a glass, a drinking glass, you know, there, or a dog. And then you really try to get what it is rather than just what it informs for a story to be told. That's what, what, what I'm trying to say when I talk so much about presence and not representation. It's not representing the thing that it's meant to be in a conceptual way so a story can be told, but it's, it's an end in itself. And of course, all these ends in themselves are narrative in a way, because we exist chronologically and we cannot avoid at least uh, me that I'm in this sense a uh, Westerner, I cannot avoid speaking chronologically, creating and building chronologically. So the films also have a, a chronology and also have a narrative. But this narrative is always underneath presence. The presence of everything is, for me, for cinema to be alive, presence has to be the first quality uh, rather than, than, than the narrative itself. I have a more pragmatic question. You do so much filming outside and working with animals and children and the weather and all these factors that are not totally in your control. Like, as a filmmaker, when you go into some of these scenes, um, how often do you have to kind of roll with the punches with all of these factors that you're... How often I have to go with the what? Well, no, I don't know the expression. Uh, um, just uh, like adapt to the unexpected. Yes, exactly. Okay. The improviser. Yeah. How much spontaneity is there when you're you're working with those outdoor shots? And the last part of the question is, how often does something turn out different than you expected, or in a way that you're happy with, or uh, maybe changes your perspective of what you had going? I feel like I don't know. You probably have an idea of going into the scene, what it's how it's going to turn out. How often does it? go in a different direction, in a good way, or in a way that you think that's Okay, uh, basically, um, I, I, I do prepare very much, like in a Hitchcockian sense, like uh, everything I do, I, 
I make a plan of the shots, like a, a bird's eye, not so much anymore, but I used to. But I do make a storyboard and I write everything down, all the dialogues are there. So I prepare as much as I can. But then uh, in opposition to someone like Hitchcock who works with professional actors, everything is absolutely controlled, uh, the clothing, the makeup, you know, the studio, everything, uh, to the last detail. Uh, I work with non-actors and I work in locations, natural locations, uh, and with, no, with only natural light. So there's always, you know, the, the, the unexpected uh, gust of wind that can come, uh, dust that can be, that, that can move around, mistakes by the people talking. And so there I have to be able to know what to keep and what to, to, to leave behind. So my idea is that the more you prepare and, uh, and the more you design, the better you will be at improvising because you will necessarily have to improvise anyway. But improvising is not just getting there to see what you make out, of, what you bring out out of the blue. It's be, being prepared. And I, I insist, the more you prepare, the better you will be able to see the unexpected. Because if everything is improvised, then you will not even be seeing the signals, you know? It would be overwhelming, and you wouldn't be able to have any grip or know what you're doing or prepare the shots correctly so they cut with each other and these kind of things that are so important in cinema. So... I, I prepare a lot, and then there's always the unexpected, always, always present, and, and then I adapt to that. So at the same time, if you would see my storyboards, they seem very, very similar to the film. But there's a lot of things that are coming there, you know, just even the feelings of the, of the people there. And my own feelings when I was acting, how they were coming out, that was coming from life itself. So I always think that films should be better than many directors say, oh, well, of course, it's not as good as I thought because, of course, my mind is further and there's the limits of reality. But I think films should always be exactly the opposite, should always be better than what the filmmaker can think. Because no matter how much you can think, the information of actual life, of actual existence, of nature itself is so vast, so rich, and so beautiful, or ugly if that was the case, or... And, and, and all this will have to inform the, the film, and the film has to grow and go beyond, uh, beyond your, your, your own mind. Um, like you're fishing, you know. You, you prepare everything for the fishing, but then you have to fish, and, and that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that is not in your hands fully. So, yeah, rarely things structurally uh, are born, but a lot of energetic things are born in the shooting and, and, and later. Very, for In my case, little in the editing room. A lot of films are, are born actually in the editing room. I'm, I'm the kind of filmmaker that pre-visualizes, so my edition is almost made in, cam in camera. I don't cover myself like doing master shots and then quick and then close-ups and this and that, different angles. I pre-visualize, so I shoot what you see, basically. So for me, the shooting room uh, serves uh, the purpose of finding the right rhythm, just the rhythm, you know, that is the clock part, but it's just an internal thing. That's why it's not a perfect rhythm. It's just the right rhythm of the film within its own logic. That's the first uh, thing that for me the, the, the editing does. The second is it's a, it's a garbage uh, can, you know, uh, bin or what do you call it, the trash can, uh, where some things that 
in the end you have to drop you 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 drop it's amazing to think how many how much you can write a screenplay and then sit with other people and shoot and then in the end there's things that you have to uh, to drop and they're so obvious but no one ever thinks about them until it's finished i don't know why there's like a logic like that and then the third one would be like it would be like a hospital there's certain things that you still need that you can't drop but that you didn't do right and these things you have to arrange like in a hospital the best way you can it's like little operations if you have some of those sometimes those operations can be better than the original idea and that that, that imperfection can enrich the film but if there's too many of those then the film will go to waste there can be a few i think only very a few but those can enrich the film yes oh thank you um, for the so many qualities in the film your selection or your choice for the voices that are the internal voices. Yes. The first one, I think, is a child's voice. Yes. But it's you. It's what's one. Exactly. Could you talk about this? Yes. The first time, well, this is the first time I use voiceover in my life. And uh, you're right, the first one, it's, it's the girl, actually, and the second time, it's the boy. So it's the two children, but it's one, and you're totally correct. Um, so some people are a little distracted, in my opinion. Uh, when I was finishing the film, said to me, like, why are you doing this with the voiceovers when you're already seeing everything? So what is the point? Uh, for me, it's so obvious that one thing is what you are seeing as events, which are objective events, and the other thing is when it's going through one's head, what he thinks he's saying and what he's considering. So this is the subjectivization of reality. And this is what we all do, and this is how all, we all experience life. We need to subjectivize uh, whatever we experience. So that's why even in a couple, we experience exactly the same events, but there's the version of one of the persons in the couple and the version of the other. Uh, and because we all subjectivize differently. so. The moment he puts his feelings down in words, then that process of subjectivization, can you say that? Yeah, subjectivization, I know it's a sort of neologism. <laughs> yeah, making it subjective, like making it personal uh, happens. Um, so it was very important for me to show how he was dealing with something that we could uh, judge differently, being the viewers that have a broader approach because we, we see all the events and actually we see Esther as well. That goes for those two blocks. But then there's then the letter again is, is again that, that that even goes further because that's directly someone writing, so putting in I mean the other is like what he's thinking. But the other one is what she is thinking and writing down and trying to express to the other because one thing is what you think for yourself and then another thing is what you think for yourself and then you have to express to another and put it down in words so the other one can empathically understand so that go that's a step further of uh, Esther's subjectivity so I, I wanted to go as far as that and then for example for the letter I do remember that uh, I did I remember thinking when I was writing the film that in so many films you see letters 
uh, people start writing letters, but there's always like some fear of the director of, of boring the audience or some people will get bored or I don't know what, and then they cut to other things or the, the letters are always cut short. Uh, but I have always thought that uh, cinema is about voyeurism technically because we're seeing other people's lives directly on their faces without any sense of uh, modesty, you know? I'm not talking about anything sexual or anything, just, just life itself. So reading someone else's letter is always a sort of joy. That's why we have to refrain from doing it because it's... It, it, so I thought like hearing this letter all the way, all the way would be a pleasure. And that's why it goes on for, I think, five or six minutes. But it, it sounded like crazy when I was writing it, you know, like, are you really going to do that, the whole thing, and um, without any cut? But I think we can engage with that if we manage to go in. That, that's exactly the thing I like to engage the most with in a film, personally. So that's why those things go like that. Yes, maybe you. She asked me about my uh, writing process and how has it shifted throughout my, all my films, no? I mean, from, yeah. I have to tell you, I learned, I, I didn't go to film school, so I learned to make films basically watching films. So I thought that, as I just said, that uh, whatever you see on a film was what was filmed. I didn't realize that there were other angles taken and things like that. So I learned to pre-visualize my films very, very much. So what I write is shots always since the beginning, not literature to be changed in or adapted to cinema, but I, I write a series of shots, one after the other, like a description of a film, a film you're already seeing. So you say this, and then there's a cut, and then this, and then there's a cut, and then this. And so I'm describing what goes on. And basically, I think uh, during uh, sometimes months and years that overlap other films about uh, general ideas, general like main engines that will be like the pulling forces in, in the film. And I think of atmospheres and then probably of places and I start looking at people that could probably do the film, but I still don't know the plot. All that to tell you, I don't know the plot or I don't know, I don't take any notes. I just think about this a lot. And then one day I sit down and in and all my films I have written in less than three days. Non-stop during three days I write, two or three days. And and whatever I write, I I, I, I keep basically, I mean, I can change a few things, but maybe one, two percent. And then when it's, once it's finished, I, it's not that I don't want to change it. I just never feel the need to change it, change it again. Uh, so I don't do drafts, you know, like draft 24 and that kind of thing. Uh, and I don't do that. Once it's finished, it's, it's done. That's how it works. I know it's very uh, rare. But I have to tell you, I don't know anything about turning points, even character building. I don't even understand it. I just observe uh, humans and then I write humans. I think all this idea of character building is actually, to put it very bluntly, it's like how to make a cartoon out of a person rather than building something really interesting. It's how to reduce a person to a simplistic character rather than the complexity of uh, any human. So uh, yeah, those are things that I never think about in a film. And also like uh, presentation, development, you know, uh, events, and then conclusion. I don't think of any of those things, absolutely, because that is natural in, a, in the way we talk uh, anyway, in the way we communicate. Uh, we build up and then we develop and then we close down, you know, with conclusion. So all this comes natural to the writing process. If I was here to give any kind of advice, it would be to trust our intuition the most we can and understand that art necessarily puts intuition before reason. And that intuition implies reason in it. It contains it, but it doesn't have to be 
before us. We're not engineers. And all these books and a lot of the schools teach filmmaking as if we were engineers. So everything serves a purpose. But in and all of the other arts, it's clear that nothing serves a purpose, a specific purpose. Uh, it's, it's, uh, so that's, that's, that's what I would like to, yeah, put forward mostly. Wait, one more, one more question. He asked me about the people, uh, characters in Silent Light if I was uh, making some parallelism with Bible characters. Uh, no, not at all. I don't even know exactly what David did or uh, the other person you mentioned. Really, seriously, no, not at all. Uh, these people live in a, in a religious uh, society, but for me, the film was purely about just humans. It, it's actually a... You could say it's a pantheistic film uh, or even pagan, although it happens among them, you know. But I, I think nothing in that film is connected to a religious feeling, apart from the guilt they feel. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, especially the man. Nothing else. Even, you know, when she comes back to life at the end. Of course, people ask me about Dreyer, but you know what really happens? <laughs> I, I, said, I said this, this yesterday, and I rarely say it, but this is, this is the truth. I was writing it, and when I'm writing, I am, I am whatever I'm writing. A woman, a man, a boy, a girl, uh, or even an animal, or even the plants. I'm, I'm feeling that kind of thing, even the machines. So I think uh, a machine working and, and, and a human thinking in the end are not very different from each other as we think. Actually, I think they're pretty much the same, almost the same thing. Or they belong to the same space, the same, the same energy, the same thing. So I was writing that film and then I, I, uh, she was meant just to die and I thought the film would end in this um, funeral. And I thought, I was so sad also because someone very dear had died recently, that I wanted to bring her back to life. And I thought I would, and that was all. And I thought people would think this was pretty much like dryers or dead. And I had been uh, with the Mennonites for many years going back and forth, and I had been in funerals and weddings. And I realized that if you shoot Protestant peasants, Germanic in the countryside, it looks like Odette forcefully or like Vermeer. Also, people ask me about Vermeer. And I said, no, I never thought of Vermeer. But if the context makes Vermeer paint what he painted or Odette or this film look alike in a way. I mean, it doesn't look as good as Vermeer. But, you know, there's that atmosphere. So she comes back to life. And then what is it? What does it mean? Also, people ask me. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, it's what you feel. Maybe it's like what he would desire, what you wish that could have been. Maybe you want to believe in a miracle. But, uh, but people always ask me about Tordet because we always, again, think of philosophy, high culture, other films. But no one asked me about The Sleeping Beauty, for example, which was quite a shock for me to uh, hear when I was a young boy and it was read in, uh, next to my bed by my mother, I think. Or uh, even uh, there's a film by the, in the 1978, I think. I was, it's one of my first memories of film, uh, which is Superman. Uh, and, and then at the end, Louis Lane dies and this guy goes around the planet like very fast and makes it go back three days and changes the course of events. And that sounds like ridiculous what I'm saying, but everyone that has had people die in accidents, you always think, well, it's happened to me, and I, you always think, if I could have changed just 10 seconds this or that, it wouldn't have happened. And you always wish you could go back, but then you can't. So I think that's where it came from.
you see. But so, so I wasn't thinking of anything religious, and I thought, or that is about divine intervention, and and it's a religious film, and this is a completely uh, not religious film, although it's in a religious community. Could everyone join me in thanking Carlos for his wonderful film and for talking Thank with us? Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very, very, very much for coming, for being here so late. And thanks very much to all of you for uh, hosting here at the Wexner. It's a great pleasure, Dave, and thank you very much. And I want to thank uh, John Vickers very much because uh, otherwise I wouldn't be here in the Midwest. <laughs> thank you very much. That was Mexican filmmaker Carlos Rigatas talking with Ohio State professor Laura Podolsky. Thanks for listening to WexCast. For more information about all things Wex, go to wexarts.org.